You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today. Every week we bring you national security, whether you're quarantined at home or smug, vaccinated, and jetting around the planet. I'm Elisa. Today I have the privilege once again to welcome Professor Bill Banks, Distinguished Professor and Professor Emeritus at the Syracuse University College of Law, the author of books and numerous articles on national security law, one of which is particularly noteworthy given our topic today, and that is constitutional law, structure and rights in our federal system. Professor Banks, as always, thank you for helping out. It's a pleasure to join you again, at least in a vet, and to meet Nate personally. This is a great opportunity for me. Indeed. Welcome back. I'm Yvette, and let's jump right into it. In 2020, some of the biggest national security issues played out in the context of our elections. In particular, the claims that our elections were not free and fair, the concerns that foreign interference was at work through social media platforms, and the rampant proliferation of false information about voting fraud. And it would be hard to ignore the conspiracy theories directed at elections meant to cast doubt on the validity of any election outcome. What are we and what is our national security if the security of our elections leading to the peaceful transition of power is no longer a given? And furthermore, how can we be that shining city on a hill, that beacon of democracy abroad, if we are not able to have full faith and confidence of the American electorate going forward? To help us answer all of our burning election law questions, including toward the end of this podcast, questions that you may have about cybersecurity of elections, our guest today is Professor Nate Persilian. God help me if I've pronounced his name incorrectly, of Stanford. Professor Persili is, well, he's a towering figure, frankly, in election law. He's also the author of the leading election law casebook, The Law of Democracy, His current work, for which he's been honored as a Guggenheim Fellow, Andrew Carnegie Fellow, and Fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences, it examines the impact of changing technology, ding, 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 I'm sure you're catching that, on the political communication campaigns and election administration. So he's also the co-author of, co-director rather, of the Stanford Cyber Policy Center, You ought to take a look at that, listeners, because that is an impressive array of people. And of course, he's one of them, as well as the Stanford Program on Democracy and the Internet and the Stanford MIT Healthy Elections Project, emphasis here, that is a bipartisan, nonpartisan group, uh, which supported local elections officials in taking the necessary steps during the COVID-19 pandemic to provide for safe voting options for the 2020 election. Professor Priscilla, what an honor to have you with us. Thank you for joining. Thank you for having me. Let's start with a little structure and some basics. If you could please remind our listeners what the Constitution says about elections and their administration. What's the respective role of the federal and state governments in our elections? Well, when I teach my class on the law of democracy, uh, the students are surprised in the first session to learn that there is no right to vote in the US Constitution. It's something that makes us quite different than most other parts of the world. As a result, what we, what we spend our time learning in that class is are the constraints on state election administration in particular. And that, that's the basic feature of, of the US electoral administration system, which is that most of the power to regulate elections uh, lies at the state level. Now, the Constitution itself 
right, is specific in saying that states, in particular state legislatures, will set the manner of presidential elections, and that states will determine the time, place, and manner of congressional elections, subject to congressional amendment or congressional oversight. So Congress does have a role to play in providing some national legislation when it comes to regulating elections, but most of the power is at the state level. And then the states devolve that power further down to the local level. So uh, we often have quite a bit of diversity among counties in the way they administer elections. So the follow-up, you know, your opening line was undeniably correct, but it's also pretty stunning to those who hadn't studied the constitutional provisions about elections and voting. If there's a right to vote, who provides it? And what are the state's obligations in upholding insurance that citizens are able to exercise the franchise? So while there isn't the right to vote explicitly in the Constitution, uh, starting in the 1960s, the Supreme Court has basically read one into it. So the 14th Amendment does not guarantee a right to vote, but the Supreme Court has, in a series of cases beginning with uh, both the one-person, one-vote cases and redistricting, as well as the cases dealing with poll taxes and the like, has decided that while there might not be a right to vote explicitly in the Constitution, anytime you start discriminating amongst groups of people with respect to the right to vote, that that is constitutionally suspect. So they've read that into the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And so that's why we get all these lawsuits, whether it's about voter identification or other kinds of obstacles to voting and the like, um, which some of which are constitutionally grounded and then some of which are statutorily grounded. So of course, since the 1960s, We've had the Voting Rights Act. We've had the National Voter Registration Act, otherwise known as Motor Voter. We've had the Help America Vote Act. We have all kinds of statutes dealing with military voters. And so it's not as if the federal statutory code ignores voting, but the Constitution, you know, when it comes to constitutional law, for the most part, the right to vote to the extent it is protected is protected because the Supreme Court has declared that it's a fundamental right and that you can't discriminate amongst people once you start giving the right to vote to some. Uh, Others who are similarly situated also uh, should be getting it. All right, well, let's jump forward here for just a second. We're in the middle of what I think can be fairly described as a flurry of changes in state election laws right now. A a lot of press, of course, has been given to what happened in Georgia. Um, It looks like Virginia may have gone a different direction today. Some are claiming uh, by this that they're preserving election integrity. So, for example, Georgia says, you know, people might be influenced to vote a particular way if somebody hands them a bottle of water while they're waiting in a line for three hours and the like. Um, But others are arguing that this is really just efforts at voter suppression. Can you characterize these various new efforts by the state, states plural? (laughs) So you're right, there has been a flurry of activity and that's true for the last year, not just the last few months since the election. And so the pandemic has spurred on a lot of innovation in the voting area. So states had to rush to adapt the election infrastructure to provide for healthy polling places, uh, increased mail voting and social distance. And so our election system was not readily prepared for that. In fact, you could see in the primary elections a year ago how difficult it was for states to make those adaptations. So, you know, in places like Milwaukee during the Wisconsin primary, they closed down 97% of their polling places 
because they simply weren't prepared. They didn't have the poll workers, they didn't have the locations and everything. So over the last year, there have been a series of measures that, that states and localities have adopted to adapt the voting infrastructure. That includes new rules on mail balloting, changing of deadlines, new rules on polling places, on poll workers, and the like. So we've the era of experimentation began before the election, uh, not merely after it. Now, since the election, there, there's widespread belief among the majority of Republican voters that the election was not free and fair and that, you know, it was rigged, depending on what public opinion survey you look at, right, you, you see a huge partisan divergence in belief that the election was fair. Now, areas in particularly that are controlled by Republican legislatures are passing laws to deal with voting integrity and to deal with the alleged rigging of the 2020 election. I'm, I'm at least certainly one in the camp who sees that as the, as the big lie, right, that, that, there was, that this was an incredibly well-run election. Anyone who is in, in the guts of election administration over the last year uh, sees that. But, you know, we saw it in the January 6th uprising, we saw it in, we see it in public opinion polls that there is, you know, tens of millions of people who think that the election was not free and fair. And so we have a series of bills that have been proposed over 360 at this point that have been posed in order to roll back some of the accommodations that we saw in the COVID to deal with COVID. But even beyond that, regulations on mail balloting in particular, on uh, all kinds of other issues like the private funding of election offices, even extending, as we saw most notably in Georgia, to regulating whether people can give water and food to people who are in line to vote. And so what, what's happened is that, that the states have kind of put themselves into three different buckets. There are those that that made these adaptations to COVID to expand voting access, make mail voting easier and the like. And in some of those states, for example, California, where I live, those adaptations are going to be permanent. In some states, the, these were temporary adjustments simply to deal with the pandemic, and they will sort of fade away and go back to the status quo ante before the pandemic. And then there are other states, and Georgia is an example of that, that are actually going back and using the post-pandemic, post-election period to roll back voting rights to a situation that is even worse than it was before the pandemic. Now, Georgia, there's been a lot of exaggerated coverage of what's happening in Georgia. Uh, Georgia is not the worst of it all. Um, we're seeing it in many other states as well, whether it's Iowa, Oklahoma, a few other places where they are taking this opportunity to enact what are restrictive uh, voting reforms. Then there are states like Kentucky that, that have you know, seriously thought about election reform even before the pandemic, and they were able to come up with a pretty bipartisan access and integrity package that was signed into law very recently. So Nate, uh, you know, one of the things that's occurred to me as I, as I follow the coverage of the changes in the states is that in some cases, the changes could actually be destabilizing locally that there could be impacts on state economies. You've got boycotts, God forbid, the moving the Major League Baseball All-Star Game, all kinds of significant corporate statements and the like. How do you view those kinds of events in the larger context? Well, it is a remarkable dynamic that we're seeing now where the corporations are boycotting Georgia, like you said, Major League Baseball, Coke, Delta, and the like. 
And so that that is a a new twist on this current debate over voting rights. I, I don't know. I don't know where that's going to lead. I mean, it, it was sort of remarkable to see Senator McConnell ask corporations to stay out of politics when you know anyone who's been following the campaign finance area has has known that hasn't been the tune he's generally been singing. But I, I think that what we're seeing is that the issue of voting is uh, becoming a kind of central polarizing force. Um, that is orienting the political parties. And so, and that's not surprising when, when, you know, President Trump did not really concede defeat, you know, when we've never really been in this situation before. So that that is more than almost any issue, this question about uh, the ease with which people can vote, as well as, you know, what integrity measures should be there to protect the security of the vote. That is really becoming a polarizing issue between the parties when it really hasn't. I mean, it's, it's been true, you know, that even before the election, we saw that the Republicans and Democrats had different views on voting, but it's become so uh, pronounced in, the, in recent years. And so therefore, right, all civil society actors, like you're saying, corporations and the like, are being forced to take sides as well. We're looking at some federal action to try and like, cabin the state's activity in this sphere, right? So the For the People Act is being considered in Congress. It is likely to languish without any um, changes to the filibuster. Wondering, like, if Congress declines to enact legislation that would override some of these state measures that seem to be tending towards the voter suppression genus of the species, what would you say are the national and international security implications for our democracy? Well, as you began this podcast, you know, you hinted at at the what are the soft power aspects of American democracy, right? The ability of the U.S. to be the champion of democracy and to market it around the world, and we are losing that credibility in the international sphere. And and so I think that it, it's not clear to me that even if Congress does pass these laws, that we're going to re reclaim that mantle. I mean, I think right now, because of the way our democracy is functioning, um, we are losing the argument internationally, either among other democracies that our system is particularly good, or even against uh, authoritarian regimes like China that are persuasively arguing to those on the fence that maybe something closer to the U.S. model is actually not um, in their interest. And so, the fact that we are engaging in these kind of fundamental disagreements over voter access to the ballot is undermining our, our credibility abroad. Uh, and look, it's, it's, it's not just the fact that these measures are being passed, but it's also the fact that Americans themselves, a large swath of Americans have lost faith in democracy, right? And so um, if Americans themselves are losing faith in their own democracy, it's hard to persuade others that we have a model that should be emulated. And I think that this is a, you know, we are re in a critical time right now when it comes to the trajectory of American democracy, uh, whether we're going to continue to be the symbol of free and fair elections around the world and the importance of them for a healthy democracy or whether we're going to be seen as as retrenching or as a you know a, a a failed system that had sort of outlived its success. That is a an interesting characterization. And to your point, we did have the former CIA station chief on the podcast who talked about Putin's view of us as being hypocritical in a lot of aspects of our democracy. Can I, so I can imagine this is uh, only 
fueling somebody like him. But I'd like to pivot for just a moment, and I'd like to talk about what the federal laws are on the books, what the state of the federal law is, uh, and where the Supreme Court is on some of these cornerstone laws, such as the Voting Rights Act. Most notably in the last 10 years, uh, the Supreme Court gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act was that provision that was passed in the 1960s that would have put that 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 required certain jurisdictions, particularly in the South, but not exclusively in the South, to get federal permission for any new voting laws to prove that they didn't have the purpose or effect of discriminating on the basis of race. From the 60s to, to 2013, um, you had a series of every every time a, a southern most southern jurisdictions would pa- would move a polling place would pass a redistricting plan a voter id law it would have to be pre-cleared either by the department of justice or the courts in order for it to go into effect now the supreme court has taken away that critical component of federal election law because they said look the the singling out of the south and other states based on data from the 1960s was not constitutional congress can't do that they have to update the coverage formula and congress has failed to do that there is the john lewis voting rights act which is before congress right now which would update the coverage formula and have a rebirth of of section 5 of the voting rights act so just as that the federal the statute dealing with uh, voting was struck down we still do have some as i said some federal regulations on this, like the Help America Vote Act, which is what has moved us toward paper balloting in the US. It's what has statewide voter registration. It's what gives us provisional ballots. So if you go into the voting, um, into the polling place, you can't be turned away. Uh, you'd ha- you at least have the right to cast a provisional ballot. And we, we've got different rules on voter registration from the motor voter law uh, and the like, and, and as well as laws for service people uh, abroad, uh, the what are known as UACABA, Uniform and Overseas uh, Voting Act. But then there are the constitutional cases that the Supreme Court, constitutional and statutory cases that the Supreme Court has uh, handed down. There is this general background principle that you have a right to vote that they have read into the Equal Protection Clause. You see that in why poll taxes are unconstitutional. Even a the famous case called Kramer uh, versus Unified School District, where they said a 30-year-old stockbroker who lives with his parents and wants to vote in school board elections has a constitutional right to do so, even if for the school board, they're saying that only parents or owners of property are able to do so. So, it, so there is this background robust view of the right to vote which has been chipped away through various regulatory means in the last few decades. And so most notably on the voter ID side, uh, the Supreme Court in Crawford versus Marion County made clear that voter ID laws are generally constitutional. And so they, they're not seen as either an unconstitutional poll tax or other kind of uh, barrier akin to those that were, were struck down in the 1960s. We, there is still a remaining part, portion of the Voting Rights Act, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which allows private litigants to go into court to say that a given law or redistricting plan discriminates on the basis of race. And so uh, we are seeing that, and the court has a case right now, the Brnovich case out of Arizona, where it will be deciding the sort of extent and, and, and it will interpret Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act to see how strong a weapon that is in striking down voting laws. You know, Nate, that Brnovich is certainly a case to watch. You know, after the courts were so heavily uh, taxed in responding to the 
Trump lawsuits or Trump and related lawsuits in this November and December, the, the pressure was eventually off once the Biden administration took office. But what's the next wave? What are we likely to see aside from Brnovich in, in light of all the different 40 some states that have enacted new voting rights measures and the state and federal courts, where's the action going to be? Well, I think that we, we're going to see get an answer pretty soon um, because at least three lawsuits have been filed against the Georgia law. Now, I, I will actually be surprised if, say, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the, the Georgia law. The, the thing that makes the Georgia law distinctive is really its motivation more than the actual law itself, um, that it was motivated to combat fraud, which even the signer of the law, the governor, does not think you know, was rampant in the 2020 election. And so when you focus on the motivation behind these laws, um, the, the main argument is going to be that a kind of typical equal protection anti-discrimination argument that these laws are motivated by um, suppression, particularly of African-American voting rights. And so that, that, that will be what will be argued in a context like that, as well as this Section 2 Voting Rights Act argument, which is even if you can't figure out the motivation, is there um, a disparate impact on voters of color such that it would violate the effects prong of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act? And so I, I think you're going to see in areas with large minority populations, I think you're going to see a lot of these, the, these kinds of arguments being made. And then, you know, it may be that you'll, you'll have a kind of fundamental right to vote argument that will be made in, in certain other places. But since the Supreme Court has upheld voter ID and since you don't have a constitutional right to vote by mail, let's say, and since you don't have a constitutional right to have a month of early voting, right, uh, that, that states are given wide latitude to um, make decisions about you know, th those kinds of aspects of the election infrastructure. And, you know, it's not just the kind of southern states that are the ones who may have uh, restrictive voting. You look at places like New York, it is, you know, got less generous voting protections than many places in the South. And, and a lot of that is just because, you know, New York until recently didn't even have no excuse absentee voting. And most of the Northeast, New England as well, never had early voting, right? And uh, for cultural and other kinds of reasons, as well as decentralization. So if you're the Supreme Court or any court that's looking at a, a state that is rolling back what were more permissive laws with respect to voting, you have to do so in a way that doesn't cast a shadow over and call into doubt many of these other states that have sort of less generous voting laws. I'd like to shift for a minute back to sort of the issues of technology. We stand obviously in a very big changing world at this time. Uh, back in 2016, there was the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which was largely occurred through the pipeline of the largest uh, social media platform, Facebook. But now we have Parler, Gab, any number of these things. And it did, to your point about secondary and tertiary consequences, it sort of damaged the American psyche. And what would you say, though, are positive, because I'm sure you have them, positive and negative impacts of technology on our elections? So after the 2016 election, I wrote a piece called Can Democracy Survive the Internet? And the basic argument there was that the most democratic features 
of the new digital communication infrastructure were what are kind of threatening democracy itself. And so this is a big, you know, obviously a big topic and I teach a whole course on it. The basic question is, as you move from mediated communication, such as television, radio and the like, in newspapers to disintermediated communication, the fact that we can, you know, basically anyone has a megaphone online, what are the democracy threatening effects of that? And so a, a lot of this is not just about the elections themselves, right? It's about, it's about the, the marketplace of ideas and, and the, um, the speech ecosystem. And so I try to focus not on things like fake news and, um, and hate speech, because fake news is as old as news, hate speech is as old as speech, um, but ask the question, well, what is it about the technology itself that is democracy stressing? And so there's a series of you know, features of, of the internet that I think uh, affect democracy. The first is sort of a bucket of issues dealing with velocity, virality, and volume, the speech the speed at which information travels, the fact that it's done through peer-to-peer -peer communication where you take out any referees that send some kind of boundaries on um, politics and political communication, and the fact that the volume, the amount of information that we have just in our cell phones, in our pockets, makes this a very different um, communication infrastructure. And each one of those features is democracy related. So the speed at which information travels means that well-placed lies before an election are much more difficult to counteract than they were in the legacy media infrastructure. Virality means that we privilege certain types of speech and candidacies over others, particularly those that appeal to outrage and emotion, which is not terribly conducive to deliberative democracy. And the volume of speech means that we have to delegate to private corporations the ability uh, to, to enact community standards in terms of service that are sort of outside of democratic accountability. Beyond those features, there's also the megaphone that we are giving to anonymous speakers. So anonymity is obviously a quite an important part of the internet speech ecosystem. And so when people are speaking anonymously, they engage in more unaccountable speech, whether it's hate speech or otherwise. In addition, the anonymity problem gives us what's known as the bot problem, the fact that we cannot distinguish whether we are talking to another human being or talking to a computer. And so, you know, we've seen, you know, millions of bots uh, engage in, whether it's on Twitter or elsewhere, engage in speech online and being used by foreign actors and domestic actors. Then there's the problem of what we call homophily or echo chambers, the fact that you can self-select into your own media ecosystem which some people uh, suggest leads to polarization. I think that's a more complicated story there. For the most part, our online lives are very similar to our offline lives. But as we saw on January 6th and you know, in the, with the QAnon conspiracy theorists and stuff and, and, and related issues, they, um, you know, the online environment for a certain subset of America, well, of, of people, of users, right, can be a real radicalizing force. Last two features I would say with respect to this are sovereignty and monopoly, the fact that in the, in the era of the World Wide Web, we cannot wall off our democracy from foreign influences as easily as we did previously. Um, that's true you know, in the context of something like the Russian incursion in 2016, but if you also talk to the Europeans, right, they're worried about American technology companies essentially dominating the information environment uh, uh, relevant to their elections. And that's the final point, which is monopoly, which is the power of Google and Facebook is simply unrivaled in modern history of communications. You know, they have more power over 
the information ecosystem than any institution since the pre-Reformation Catholic Church. And so those, those firms are now taking the place of governments when it comes to determining the laws and rules of uh, political speech in elections. So, Professor, you've really laid that problem out beautifully and terrified everybody in the audience. And so I'm going to ask you the perennial question of what our laws can do to address some of those concerns, right? We're, you know, we're trying to balance the democratic good of promoting free speech against the corrosive harm of disinformation, foreign interference, these interesting economic questions of monopoly that kind of bleed over into these conversations. Like, what can the law do? Well, as, as you said, there's lots of different problems that are out there. And so one law is not going to fix all of them. And so, look, if we're worried about platform power, then you know, we have antitrust tools that we can use in order to get at that. Um, um, there are, but there are certainly downsides to doing so, right? I mean, not only for the firms themselves, uh, but also as you start thinking about this in an international context, thinking about the um, capacity of American firms as compared to the Chinese firms, you know, state, almost quasi state run firms uh, to, to compete and the like. Um, and it's not clear that if, for instance, you broke up Facebook into its component parts that would solve this problem of, say, disinformation and um, the problem of viral transfer of harmful speech. Um, and one of the reasons I, I believe that is that, you know, Facebook, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about uh, the big blue app, the Facebook it, itself, and how it, it propagates disinformation, hate speech, and incitement. But if you go other places in the world, they're worried about WhatsApp. WhatsApp is, you know, a, a basically a glorified text messaging app, uh, and it's owned by Facebook. But it doesn't have an algorithm. It doesn't have micro-targeted ads, and yet you still see the problems of disinformation, hate speech, and incitement in places that are that are using it. So if we broke up Facebook into WhatsApp, Instagram, etc., I'm not so sure it would solve this problem. It still might be a good thing to do from the standpoint of, you know corporate power and the like, but, but I'm not so sure it would, it would solve this problem. There are a series of things though that we can do in, in particular contexts. So we can start regulating online political ads. There's a, a bill out there, actually it's part of HR1, the For the People Act, but the Honest Ads Act, right, which is, uh, would regulate online political advertising in the same way we do that for, um, for television and radio. There are, and there's greater disclosure that, that could be uh, required. I tend to think that when it comes to the internet platforms, that through antitrust, privacy regulation, as well as transparency uh, legislation, that we could get a lot of the way there. And one of the problems for analysts like me on the outside is that we really don't have access to the data that Facebook and Google have on what's actually happening in the electoral system. And so we need to find a safe, secure, privacy protected way that outside researchers can get access to those insights. Okay, well, all this discussion of tech leads us to the big lie, as you've characterized it. And we are, uh, as you know, inside the Beltway, and we've been bombarded with some fascinating information lately through our local larger newspapers regarding the cybersecurity allegations about the election. So among the recent revelations were that um, there's been some backing off on the part of the original litigants who um, character you know, brought some of the election fraud cases that perhaps the allegations vis-a-vis -vis cybersecurity of the voting machines themselves may not have been all that. Secondarily, um, there have been some journalistic efforts to surface individuals who were actually the source of the declarations and affidavits filed in those cases. 
uh, at least one of which is now uh, um, identifying an individual in Texas who was the reputed cybersecurity expert who was described as having achieved a level in the military as a wheeled vehicle operator, which I believe means he drove a truck. Um, so we find ourselves today confused. What's true? You know, these lawsuits have been rejected out of hand, but let's answer the question to the extent you can, because this is your, frankly, your area of expertise beyond any other person I can think of right now. What about the cybersecurity of elections, not just the voting machines? So as you suggested there at the end, that there, when we start thinking about the security of our election infrastructure, it's not just the place where people vote, but it's the whole ecosystem. We need to think about each part of that. And that, that includes the, the sort of hard systems that, that we use for elections, as well as the, the softer systems, which is our minds, right, that, that can be affected by um, propaganda, foreign or, or otherwise. And so let me, let me start with the, um, the hard systems, the technology itself. So I was on the American Academy of Sciences or National Academy of Sciences panel dealing with the future of voting. And we made a series of recommendations about securing our voting technology. But w as we hinted in that report, the technology of voting is not limited just to voting machines themselves. There's, there, there are all kinds of vulnerabilities from the voter registration system through electronic poll books to the voting machines, even to the mail balloting equipment that has now been purchased, um, you know, en masse to, that we deal to the rise of mail voting. So we need to make sure that each tech aspect of the voting infrastructure is safe and secure. We spent so much time over the last 20 years since Bush versus Gore focusing on the voting machines themselves and now moving toward paper balloting. And that is generally a good thing. And so now we, we you know, well over 90% of the votes that were cast in the last election had a paper ballot that could be counted. Um, that leads to, there's certain other controversies that come out of that, uh, dealing with accessibility and some other things. And then there are other computer scientists that think ballot marking devices where the computer is actually marking the paper are not as secure as they should be. But we've, we've really come quite a long way since, since the 2000 election with hanging chads and the like. But these other aspects of the, of the voting infrastructure, the other tech like electronic poll books, the voter registration system, the online voter registration system, like the state websites and the like, uh, as well as even the election night reporting systems. The, the, a lot of those systems are, are vulnerable to hacking by foreign or domestic uh, adversaries. One thing I was worried about um, and in this election was particularly the reporting systems uh, because if, you know, given the lack of confidence that people had in the results, uh, if you, you know, had a sudden switch on a state website going from one candidate to another, you don't actually have to have any problem with the actual hacking of the voting itself, but just in the perception of, of what the vote totals were, that would be undermining trust. And so those, those general concerns about undermining trust extend beyond the, the systems to the large uh, information environment and what voters and the media see. So, we, you know, in the 2016 election, and at least the postmortem, right, we, we focused a lot on the Russian actions to pollute the information environment with mostly divisive messages done both through our organic content online as well as ads. So they bought $100,000 worth of Facebook ads, you know, most notably, as well as untold numbers on through the Google ad platform and the like. And so we spent, the platforms have spent a lot of time over the last four years 
trying to prevent a repeat of the 2016 election where um, foreign actors would be um, propagating lies and division on, online. And they, they did adopt quite a lot of measures. We saw some action by Iran and, and uh, China uh, in this election, but it was really small potatoes compared to what you know people were worried about. And, and they've gotten quite good at what we, they call coordinated inauthentic behavior uh, by foreign actors. However, you know, in the 2020 election, the call was kind of coming from inside the house, right? Which is that it, it's all well and good to sort of attribute certain types of speech or, or ad purchases to foreign governments. And we, at least in the US, have laws on the books that prevent foreign spending in, in US elections. Uh, but what happens when it's domestic actors that are propagating lies? And how do you distinguish between you know, lies and disinformation on the one hand and uh, normal campaign behavior on the other, right? Because it's not as if it's just in the last four years that, that politicians have started to stretch the truth. And so you can't have, whether it's government or the platforms cannot be the arbiters of truth in all things political. And so they've had to develop, you know, very nuanced systems to try to figure out when they should warn people, when they should um, put additional context around politicians or other people's tweets and the like, when then whether in the extreme case has happened with President Trump post-election, whether a political leader should be taken down uh, because of repeated violations of the platform, either with regard to disinformation or incitement or hate speech. And so um, this is an area where the, the platforms are just lurching about trying to find answers uh, and as much as they would like to have a democratic source of authority on this, you know, if Congress were to try to pass a law on, uh, you know, limiting political disinformation, it almost certainly would violate the First Amendment. And so we've essentially outsourced these, uh, the, you know, this protection of the democracy and the information ecosystem to these private companies to make these very difficult calls in a hyper-partisan charged environment. Nate, your, your thoughts today have been incredibly helpful, really rich and very educational, I'm sure, for our, our listeners. To, to wrap up, let's offer you a chance to really just to sum up. But if you look ahead in the context of, of voting and elections, how resilient is our democracy? What is the future likely to hold in the next 2022, 2024, and beyond? So I think the systems are resilient, but the voters are not. Uh, and I think the, the systems, and by that I mean things like the voting machines, the counting process, the mail balloting system, and for that matter, the election officials themselves. I think that one of the things that 2020 showed is that under the most incredible stresses, the professionals who run our election really can rise to the occasion. And um, it, it was truly a Herculean accomplishment that they were able to pull off a, an election with record voter turnout, let's not forget, uh, in, in 2020 against you know, I, I, the, the stresses of the pandemic. So I, I think that system, even with the tinkering that's going on at the state legislatures, I think that that, that, that system will be resilient. I do worry about how many of those, those professionals are actually retiring. I've heard one estimate that roughly half of our veteran election administrators may retire in the next four years. 
Um, and who can blame them given that they've been on the receiving end of death threats and, and other kinds of criticism and the like. And so while I, I but I, I do think that, that the, the election administration field and, and the systems themselves are, resi are resilient. Um, but one of the things we know is and have learned is that it's not just about the systems themselves or the formal laws on the books, but it's perception of the fairness and integrity of the electoral system, which is a critical component to a healthy democracy. And on that, I don't see a way out right now from our, um, the, the degradation and trust that we've seen over the last four or five years. And I think that you know, a democracy, it is hard for a democracy to thrive under conditions where close to half of the population does not trust the system. This is, you know, we're seeing this, of course, on the Republican side post-election um, because of the, the lack of trust that's been propagated about the 2020 election. But we, we also saw that after 2016 among Democrats, you know, we are reaching a situation where people aren't trusting the outcome and a healthy democracy relies on peaceful transfers of power and belief by the losers that they will be able to fight another day. And so that is what concerns me uh, the most, that we are, that we, we become polarized in the very idea of democracy itself and the free freedom and fairness of our elections. And unless uh, political elites sort of rally around the system in a bipartisan way in order to send legitimacy enhancing signals to the mass public, I think that we're in, we're going to continue to be in for a rough ride uh, with each new election. All right. Well, that's alarming at best, but let's hope that Americans do what they have done in the past. Um, when we have lost our lingua franca, they do find a way back to the center, but never as quickly as everybody would like. And the center, not meaning politically, but a place where we can all join hands and uh, have a little bit more of a common reality. I just want to thank you. This has been an incredibly wonderful discussion. And we look forward to learning more about your efforts to protect elections in the future. I look forward to tracking your career as well, because it has, it's been spectacular. And we're really, really glad that you join us today. We wish you luck in your future endeavors. And we also hope, to the extent you're serving as a, as a clarion caller here, that what you're saying is being listened to by the political elites as you characterize them. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. As always, we'll hyperlink the laws discussed here today, as well as Professor Priscilli's books and articles on the topic of election laws in the notes section to the podcast. And we'll continue to deliver content to you during these very difficult times to help you grow your knowledge of the law, legal opportunities, and issues and events that affect national security law. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Be sure to send us comments and feedback because we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurity at AmericanBar.org. And the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will do whatever it can to keep you informed and give you content on these fast-moving legal developments. And don't forget that the lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. We'll be back next week with more content. So let's come together through education, knowledge, and growth. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.